Today's reading is taken from Acts chapter 9, which you can find on page 1102 of your Bibles in the pew, verses 1 through to 31. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see him again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scowls fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. 
So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Thanks, Sue, for reading that. Do keep it open as we look at it. Now, chances are, even if you don't know much about Christianity, you've heard of Saul or the Apostle Paul, as he becomes known uh, soon after his conversion. It's one of the most famous lives of history. Uh, It's hard to overstate the impact of Paul's life on Western civilization particularly, and particularly on the church. This dynamo of a man who cuts sways through the um, ancient Near East and through Europe as he plants churches, and this convert, this huge turnaround in his life. And this, chapter 9 of Acts, is one of the most famous instants, arguably the most famous instant of his life. Even if people haven't heard of Paul, they've probably heard of a so-called Damascus Road experience. We have that in the vernacular to describe a remarkable turnaround, and no doubt this is a remarkable turnaround. Now, one of the reasons I think Luke devotes so much time to it, because he not only talks about it here in chapter 9, but we also get it retold from the lips of Paul in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. Um, But one of the reasons I think that Luke devotes a lot of time to it is there down in verse 15. Look what the Lord says to Ananias. By the way, a different Ananias to chapter 5. But verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name, to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So as we read on in the book of Acts and as we see the Gospels we saw last week going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria last week and then to the ends of the earth, now that the Gospel has come to Samaria, we're in chapter 9, Paul or Saul here is going to be absolutely instrumental, an instrument used by the Lord to take the Gospel to the non-Jews, to the, to the other nations, to the Gentiles. And so we need to understand how this turnaround happens so that Paul doesn't just crop up and we see him planting churches and wonder what's going on. So there's a, an important interest in the kind of scheme of Acts that the gospel will go through Paul to the Gentile nations. But more than that, the reason I think Luke includes it is the reason is given in verse 31, right at the end of the passage. Look down there. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So on one hand, this is God's restraining hand on the persecution of the church, meaning that the church will now enjoy a time of peace and will be strengthened. It's really important to see this, that the Lord does sometimes say, enough. No, that's enough. There's no more persecution. He is always sovereignly in control. And at some points, he will intervene and say, that's it, enough. We're stopping it now. He always, if you like, has persecution by the ring of the devil's nose and is able to pull and steer him. He's completely in control. The wheels haven't fallen off the cart with the persecution in the earlier chapters. The Lord is sovereignly in control. He knows what individually we can bear and he knows what the church can bear and he says, you can't bear any more. Enough is enough. I will supernaturally intervene in the life of the apostle Paul as he will become and I will end the persecution. But there's also a sense in which seeing this turnaround, just as we heard in Diana's testimony, seeing any turnaround in any life, any intervention by God to bring someone from death to life, from darkness to light, is encouraging. 
and also is something that causes us to say, wow, awesome fear. Not a kind of terrified fear, but a sense of holy reverence, Lord, how can you do that? That is remarkable what you do in people's lives. And so as we look at the Apostle Paul's turnaround from Saul to Paul, from darkness to light, I want us to be encouraged and to have a sense of holy fear when we see the Lord and say, wow, what can you do? That is a remarkable thing that you would turn around a life like that, just as he turns around any life. It's worth saying one final thing before we get into it, that um, of course Saul's turnaround, the, the conversion of Saul by the intervention of Jesus Christ is on one sense completely atypical. It's a, a complete one-off for lots of different reasons. For the reason that anyone's turnaround is unique to them as we're going to see. It's always personal. It's always unique to an individual. There's no set kind of schema that the Lord follows. And it's also unique because Saul is going to become an apostle. And apostles have specific requirements of being eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. And so there's a sense in which this is unique and we're not to expect this for ourselves and for other people. But there's also a sense in which as Luke goes through it, and I'm hoping we'll see, this is also held up as a normative conversion experience. Now hear me carefully here. Not in the sense that the particular ways it manifests are normative. This is extraordinary. And so, you know, we need to be careful that we don't imply that if you haven't had a Damascus Road experience, you're not an authentic Christian. But the spiritual realities and the things that need to happen in Saul's life, the things we need to realize about Saul are normative for every Christian, as we're going to see. Those four things I want us to pick up on is, first of all, our starting point is one of resistance to Jesus. Secondly, that there always needs to be an encounter with Jesus. Thirdly, that there always needs to be an experience of grace in Jesus' church. And fourthly and finally, there is always growth in Jesus. So those are the four stages we're going to look at. They'll be unique for, the, for Saul, but they're going to be normative for all Christians as we understand what it is behind conversion. Let's look first of all at the starting point, resistance to Jesus in verses 1 and 2. Difficult to overstate the hatred that Saul had for Christians in the early church. Look at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters for the synagogues in Damascus so that he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So the church has been scattered, it's gone from Jerusalem, they fled, but that's not enough for Saul. It's not enough to disband the church in Jerusalem. He is going to pursue them. You get the sense that he would pursue them like a wild predator would pursue an animal wounded, dripping with blood. He will just go after it and after it and after it until it is utterly dead. And what's interesting is around verse 4, when Jesus steps into the scene, look at the question Jesus asks him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because Jesus knows, and Luke wants us to see, that behind all of Paul's hatred, all of the animosity that he has, it is not primarily directed against Christians in general or the church in general, but it is specific. It's directed against Jesus. He's resisting Jesus. When Saul retells this in Acts chapter 26, verse 14, don't need to look it up, he, um, he adds in some details, which, you know, presumably Luke didn't have access to. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, kicking against the goads is an agricultural metaphor. When um, uh, cows were being used instead of tractors to plow up a field, you would give them a basic prod to keep them going in the same direction. And if the cow was particularly annoyed with you prodding it, then it would kick back against the goads, as it were, against the prods. And so what Jesus is saying to Saul is, why have you been kicking back against my influence on your life? 
Why have you been kicking against and my prodding and my prompting in your life? In other words, this is not the first time, no matter how much Saul has tried to suppress it and push it down, that he's become aware of Jesus' work in his life. Jesus says, you've been aware of this for a long time. You've been resisting me for a long time, my friend. You know that and I know that, and now it's time to confront me. It's time to deal with me. Now, how has Paul been trying to kick against the goads? Well, I think when we piece together some of the other parts of his conversion story, we see that he's been doing it by his desire to try to justify himself before God rather than accept the grace of God to make him righteous. He wants to justify himself before God. So in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, when he's talking about the Christian experience, he says this, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Now, why does he go there? It's the 10th commandment, the last one of the commandments. Why does he go there? Because Saul, in his human life, is a person who is all about achievement, all about success. You get this if you get a chance to look it up in Philippians chapter 3, when he runs through, if you like, his confidence in the flesh. He's not only a Pharisee of Pharisees, a bright young thing rising up through the ranks in a theocracy, so got great cultural status and power, but he's also a Roman citizen. So whether he's in a Jewish context or in a Roman context, every door opens for him. And the reason he says in Philippians 3 that he persecutes the church is because of his zeal, to show zeal. In other words, it's another performance thing for him. He's so aggressive in going after the church because he gets adulation and respect and honor by the Jewish community for it. So he's all about performance, all about a sense of feeling of self-worth. And he thinks he's a good guy. He thinks he keeps the Ten Commandments, apart from when he comes to one commandment, the last commandment, and it bothers him because it says, do not covet. And he realizes that in his heart, he covets. He sees someone else who's rising up through the ranks as a Pharisee, and he wants to be better than them. He always wants to be the best. He always has a sense that he's only worthwhile if he's achieving, if he's doing enough. And he never quite feels enough, and he's aware that that is coveting, that is greedy for status and adulation, that is not resting in God, and it bothers him. And it bothers him because he knows, because he would have grown up, and this isn't too much to surmise, he would have grown up in Jerusalem, he's about the same age as Jesus, he would no doubt have heard of the teaching of Jesus, it was all over Jerusalem. And there is this unqualified, non-Pharisee, with a huge following of people, walking around telling people that you are made right with God on the basis of unmerited grace, that you don't have to keep the law. It stands for everything that Saul is against, and he hates it. He's kicking against the goad. He wants to justify himself, and he hates the fact that there is someone out there teaching the opposite, that it's all by grace and not by works. And I want you to see the type of person that that works mentality always turns people into becoming. Because as we look down in verse 1, the phrase there, murderous threats, literally means a beast snorting out murder in the original Greek. It's a very bestial picture. Later on in verse 21, we get this phrase, the man who caused havoc. Havoc means an animal ripping something apart. So here Luke portrays Saul as a kind of beast, as something less than human. And I think the point that Luke is making is that when you reject the grace of God 
And when you try to live in rebellion to God, trying to justify yourself, it makes you less than human. It makes you like an animal. Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament in Daniel wanted to live in resistance to God. And the judgment of God on him for a time was to say, you want to live like an animal? Be like an animal. And so he goes out of his mind and he lives in the field as a kind of animal for a period of time. Time and time again in the Bible, when you see descriptions of people who don't follow Christ and who reject Christ, it is portraying them as less than human, as being kind of animals. Romans 1 talks about humanity and rejection of God as being given over to shameful lusts, kind of animal instincts, and a depraved mind. And this is the starting point of every person without Christ. No matter how well we try to dress it up, how many social conventions we follow to make ourselves look respectable, to live in rejection to God is to be less than fully human, to be less than what God intends for you. And to think you can be right before God by your own scheme of effort and works is to make yourself less than what God intends for you. And that was something Paul had to come to realize, and each of us needs to realize as we come to Christ. Secondly, an encounter with Jesus, verses 3 to 9. Two things as we look at this. First of all, there is an encounter with the objective, that means the external truth about who Jesus is. And secondly, there is a personal encounter as the way that Jesus confronts Saul is very particular to him. I want us to see both of these. Uh, many people have tried to rewrite this account, psychologizing it. Actually, when I became a Christian at um, university, one of my best friends, his parents, one was a psychologist, the other one's a psychoanalyst. You can imagine the family conversations in that family, right? Um, but when I became a Christian, and I asked him a while, but I said, what do you think has happened in my life? He said, he said, well, I can explain it all psychologically. And then he proceeded to give me a very coherent analysis of my deep psychological needs for why I came to Jesus. And I asked him, I said this, I said, yeah, but what do you make to the testimony of Scripture? What do you make to the truth claims of Scripture? You can try to psychologize it, but it's never a sufficient explanation. And so here, how do you psychologize verse 7? The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, that is the voice, that um, said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. In other words, there is a psychological description, but it's not enough. You can't say that Saul was battling with a guilty conscience and that is a full, sufficient explanation for what went on here. He was encountering the risen Lord Jesus. There were objective facts in space, time, and history. The people he was with heard a sound. They saw the light. Objective truth. And it's really important we get that. Now, of course, for us, as we come to something like this, we might not have this same type of experience, but the way that Saul, later the Apostle Paul, talks about this, he says that Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8, last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. And there is a sense in which, for all of us, if we are coming to know Jesus, we need to have an encounter with the risen Jesus. Not like this, but through the testimony of the Apostles. That is what Scripture is. It is an encounter with Jesus as the eyewitness testimonies talk about the risen Lord Jesus in space, time, and history. It's objective. It's verifiable. It takes place in history. It's not a private psychological experience just for a few. And that's really important because we need those objective foundations. But also, do you notice, it's an encounter, a personal encounter with the truth. Look at the question of verse 4 again. 
And I think we get the tone of voice wrong in this question all the time when we read it. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When we read that, very often we kind of read an enfeebled Jesus pleading with Saul, please stop persecuting me, Paul. Please stop. That's not what's going on here. This is an encounter with the mighty risen Jesus who says, Saul, I know you. I'm going to call your name out. I'm calling you out. Why do you persecute me? The questions that God asks in Scripture are so important. When Adam and Eve run and hide, why are you hiding? Where are you? He knows why they're hiding. He knows where they are. He's God. He knows everything. It's not for his benefit, he asks them. It's for their benefit. Any good psychologist, counselor, therapist will know that the questions you ask are really, really important because they help the person to understand themselves. This is helping Saul understand himself. Saul, I know you. Why are you persecuting? What is this all about? Why are you persecuting me? Don't think it's against other people. You've got an issue with me. Here I am. Deal with me. Very personal. And of course, it's also personal that he's blinded. This man who is so self-sufficient, so proud, this one who can open every door, who in any context he walks into is in control, needs nobody. How do you confront a person like that? Well, they need to be humble, don't they? I'm told that for people who've um, been through it, that if you go through the experience of blindfolding yourself for a day and trying to go through life, it is utterly terrifying to actually experience blindness. But that's terrifying for people who know that the blindfold is going to be lifted, that they've actually got their sight. What would it be like to not know whether you've lost your sight for good? Do you see how dependent he becomes? They have to lead him. Do you see that little detail? They get up and they lead him, verse 8, to Damascus. Saul's never been led in his life. He's a leader. He leads everybody else. What is the Lord doing? He's confronting him. He's humbling him. It's a very personal experience. It's exactly what Saul needs to realize about himself before God. He's not self-sufficient. He can't do it himself. He certainly can't earn righteousness before God. And so the Lord intervenes, confronts him, calls him out, and humbles him. And in every Christian testimony, no matter how it happens, even for those who come from a Christian home, at some point there need to be these two things— a realization of the objective, external truths in space, time, and history of the claims of Jesus Christ. It's not a private spiritual experience. And at the same time, a personal encounter with Jesus. When you get the sense that he is speaking to me, he understands me. He's addressing me now. And see why these two are so important. If it's only external and there's nothing personal, then it's just dry formalism doesn't change anybody's heart. It's like something intellectually I need to understand and assent. That doesn't lead to a conversion. That just leads to usually more pride as a new thing I now know. But if it's only personal and it's not objective, well, it's foundationless. It's a very powerful experience, but where do you go from there? A few weeks later, when the experience has dissipated, what is the grounding for your faith now? How will it stand up to the pressures of life? It doesn't. But if you have the objective truth and the personal encounter, you know what you have? An encounter with the truth. And that is authentic Christianity. It is neither merely personal and subjective, nor is it merely objective and external. It is both. It's an encounter with the truth. That's what Saul has. That's what humbles him. That's what leads him to faith in Christ. 
Thirdly, grace in Jesus' church. Look at verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, a street, by the way, which is still there, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. The Lord's call is not often what we want. Can you imagine being Ananias? got a task for you, Ananias. Oh yeah, great. Willing to serve, Lord. Willing to serve. What is it? You know that guy who's just started, martyred the first Christian? He's just coming up to Damascus to ravage the church and cause havoc. I'd like you to go and lay hands on him. What? Can you imagine that? But why does the Lord send Ananias? Does he need him? I mean, he's the Lord. He can do anything. Why send someone? Why send someone to kind of lay hands on him? To be so involved, oh, we dare not miss the human element here. What a powerful, powerful experience for Saul of the grace of God. Ananias, wouldn't you want if you're Ananias to say, he's just killed someone. He's been throwing people out of their houses. You know the evil this man's done? You know the harm he's done? Bring him to book. Bring him to justice. I'm not going to see him. I'm not going to touch him with a barge pole, Lord. But notice Ananias doesn't say that. And do you see the very first words that Ananias says to him when he sees him? Look down at verse 17. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother? Brother? He calls the persecutor of the church a brother? He says to him, in the intimacy of that first laying on of hands, and the very first word he says to him, you're part of the family now? That is remarkable. What is that? It's grace. In Les Miserables, the musical version, the book is well worth reading as well, but in the musical version, Valjean stays a night at a priest's house, and he's just been um, released from a chain gang, and he's on parole and he's a man who's bittered, embittered against the world, and so in the middle of the night he gets up and he starts to steal the silver from the Catholic priest. The priest wakes up hearing a bit of a noise downstairs. Valjean assaults him, knocks him out cold, takes the candlesticks and the silver and runs out of the house. He gets captured by the police the next day who recognize the silver and bring him back to the priest's house. And in the musical, um, as a song is sung about this, the priest responds by saying to him, would you leave the best behind? So, messieurs, you may release him, for this man has spoken true. Um, may God's blessing go with you. And he validates Valjean's story. In other words, he doesn't press charges. He extends grace upon grace, and he actually gives him more silver. And as Valjean is trying to work this out later, work out this grace shown to him that this man didn't prosecute him, but called him brother, but gave him even more of his possessions, sent him away with more silver, he says this, why did I allow this man to teach my soul, sorry, to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life, he claims, for God above. Can such things be? It's grace. He called me brother. He touched my soul. 
he taught me about the grace of God and love. And in every conversion, as well as an encounter with the truth of the risen Lord Jesus, there needs to be an experience and understanding of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very usually, normatively, experienced in the context of the community of grace, the church. Richard Sibbs, the preacher, once said, is nothing so little as grace as first and nothing so glorious after. Nothing so little as grace at first and nothing so glorious after. And Ananias extends the arm of grace to Saul. He says, this is what it means to be a Christian. You are a murderer. You're a ravager of the church. You hate Jesus. Your whole life has been set up against Jesus. And yet, he came for people just like you, Saul, and just like me. And so, welcome to the family. Not that he condones the evil that Saul has done, but he says it's been paid for. Jesus died so that you might have life. Jesus experienced the cosmic injustice of the cross so that the injustice of your deeds, Saul, might be paid for in him so that you might be forgiven. That's grace. Grace to those who don't deserve it. Mercy to those who often don't want it. And it brings you into the church family. And there's a challenge here for us which is, are we as a church family one that, I suppose, everything about us communicates grace? How would we respond in this situation? Do people who come in who aren't Christians experience grace? Because it's one thing to preach it from the front, but you know what? It will be much more quickly felt from the community before people grasp it from the front. Do you get that? It will be much more quickly felt amongst the community before it's preached and understood from the front interactions with people. We don't treat people here on the basis of who they are, giving seats of honor for those who are more important. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all equal, regardless of background, ethnicity, education. But do people experience that when they come in? I think wonderfully they might, but there's always room for improvement. Grace, you're my brother, you're my sister. I accept you not on the basis of who you are or how important you are, but because Jesus died for you, you're my brother, you're my sister. Welcome. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if people had that Ananias experience as they came into Inspire St. James? And then as they heard the gospel of grace, they said, oh, I see it. That's the truth that impacts this reality. That's what's going on here. Lastly, growth in Jesus, verses 20 to 30. Look at verse 20 with me. At once, Saul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. This is always the mark of an authentic conversion, whether it's one that happens gradually over a period of time or it's a lightning bolt from heaven like this. As soon as you get the gospel, you don't need any prompting, you don't need any training, you just want to talk to people about it. And how could you not? If you've been brought from death to life, if you've been incorporated into God's family, if you've experienced firsthand God's grace, how can you not talk about it? And so straight away, Saul starts talking about it. When Jesus calls his disciples, he says, come, follow me, and the very next word, and I will make you fishers of men. Not like after three years, when you've had a bit of time, then I'll teach you how to do evangelism. It's natural. It's normative. We can't help but talk about it. Yes, of course, we're not quite as bold and as gifted as Saul, but that's not the issue. The issue is authentic conversion always leads to authentic testimony saying to someone, this is what's gone on in my life. It's remarkable. I didn't deserve it, but he saved me. 
And then lastly, sanctification. That means growing in godliness. The other piece of growing in godliness here is fascinating. Look at the little detail that's included in verses 23 to 25. And by the way, verse 23, after many days, is roughly a three-year period. So Luke clearly wants to include it in. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. The interesting Saul himself and his list of sufferings and humblings that he does in 2 Corinthians 11 uses this one last, includes this one last, if you like, as the crowning glory of his humbling experiences. Why? Well, it was the first thing he ever really experienced of being humbled by the Lord. I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, he says in 2 Corinthians 11. Now, why does he talk about this? Can you imagine if you're Saul and every door ever opens for you? Roman citizen, open the door. Pharisee of Pharisees, open the door. Every door opens for you. So don't think that when he becomes a Christian, he gets the full kind of scope and influence of the Christian life straight away. Don't you think when he became a Christian, he probably, his narrative probably went something like this, I'm going to be the best witness ever. I'm Saul. The church is lucky to have me. Yeah, he was a bit humbled by the blindness thing for three days, but he hasn't got a fully worked out theology of sanctification yet, right? So just like every young Christian, zeal, passion, cluelessness, but there's grace there. And then early on, Saul has to be lowered down in a basket. That's the way they took out the rubbish, by the way. So he's like in the dump truck going down outside the city gates. And as he's doing that, as the great apostle is being shown the tradesman's entrance, what's he thinking? Am I really up for this? not quite as glamorous as I thought. He's getting humbled. And why is the Lord doing it? And why does Luke record it? Because for every person who comes to Christ, the Lord says, I love you. I've saved you. Oh, my friend, but there's loads about you that needs to change, right? There's lots that needs to change. I know it. You know it. And those bits of you, those bits you really hold on to, they're the bits I'm coming for first. And sometimes it's painful oh, but if you really want to be an instrument for my glory, let's do some business there. You know when you have renovations in the home, or if you've ever seen anyone having renovations in the home, the first thing the builders come and do on day one is they come and smash apart your home. The walls get knocked out, the dust goes everywhere, things are getting broken, and if you come in at the end of that first day and look at your house, you will say, what on earth are they doing? Stop, 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 put it back, put it back. Oh, no, it'll look great in a bit. I don't want it to look great. I just want it to be put back because it's so alarming. But you have to go through that so that when the renovation happens, that the full scale of the works can be completed. And then months later, as you look at the work, usually delayed a bit, right? You look at it and you say, okay, wow, looks great. How do they get from that day one to that? In the same way, when Jesus Christ comes into our life, he says, my friend, there's some big works that need to happen here. These walls you've erected are going to knock them down. And the dust goes up in the air, and it looks like an utter mess. And at that moment, all of us, by human nature, want to say, stop, Lord, stop. No more. Put it back. But he says, my friend, I'm renovating. I'm making you new. Stick with it. There's work to be done. Don't shrink back. That's exactly the point to keep pressing forward. He's got work to do. So there we are. The authentic marks of conversion in the unique circumstances of the Apostle Paul, Saul as he was. 
first of all, an understanding of the resistance to Jesus that we all have. Secondly, an encounter with Jesus. Thirdly, grace in Jesus' church. And fourthly, growth in Jesus. And as we look at this, as we look at any conversion, just as we were hearing earlier with Diana, we should say, Lord, who could do this? You are remarkable. And as we look at our own lives, my friends, we should look at our own lives and say, Lord, who could do this? You are remarkable. Verse 31, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and were strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be encouraged as we see this testimony of Saul's life and as we think about the turnaround in our lives that you've done. And may we be strengthened, Lord God, that there might be a building up of this church here and of us individually, that we might be in awe and reverence of you, the Lord who brings people from death to life, the Lord who shines light into dark hearts. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.